This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Welcome to the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson, Kate Andrews and James Forsyth. And we're going to chew over the autumn statement now that we've had a bit more time to think about it. Fraser, why don't you start by just giving us a brief overview of your thoughts, feelings, emotions, dreams? I probably shouldn't say this in the podcast, but we had a number of cover options for The Spectator this week. And we had one of them was Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt with a grave, overseeing a grave, putting some earth into it. It was a beautiful image. And the headline I was going to do was the burial of growth, the end of growth, requiem for growth, that kind of thing. Now, right now, I'm sitting here thinking maybe we should have ran that image because it so perfectly fits my mood and what I think has happened that the Conservative Party has pretty much given up on any growth agenda and now regard themselves as undertakers, or to put it in a corporate way, they're basically putting the British economy into receivership rather than the new chief executive coming to give it new direction, life and an agenda. Now, I didn't do that in the cover because, of course, this is not the weekly Fraser Nelson. Well, it suited my mood. I knew that James and Kate saw it differently. So we just did a more... Um, well, you guys did see well, it let's, let's, let's let them speak for themselves. James, right. why don't you give us your take? So, I mean, the first thing to say, as Kate has written, is that the era of cheap money is over around the world. I mean, the mistake that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng made was that they were about to go on a big borrowing spree just as this era of cheap money is coming to an end. And that's why the UK's borrowing costs spiked. So I think you had to have a fiscally conservative, fiscally realistic statement. And I think it is worth noting that the key fiscal rule that Jeremy Hunt announced is actually a fairly loose one. It is just that debt is falling as a percentage of GDP by the end of a rolling five-year forecast period. That is not like hardcore German debt break style balance budget amendment stuff. That is a fairly loose rule. And I don't think you could have done all of that consolidation through spending cuts. So I think they were inevitably going to have to be some tax rises. Now, I think that tax rises are nearly always regrettable things. But I think they are necessary in the current circumstances that the country finds itself in. I also think that we shouldn't think that the government does not create growth, right? But I also think that one thing that is not going to create growth in this country is a situation where the Bank of England feels that it has to aggressively jack up interest rates and tighten monetary policy because fiscal policy is too loose. I think it is also worth reflecting that in the next two years, there is more money going into the economy, not less. So there's a mild stimulus to try and make the recession less dramatic than it otherwise will be. But I think we need to get realistic about what do we want the state to do and how are we going to pay for it? I think that the idea that we can duck this conversation is not realistic. And I think that politically people say, oh, why are you spending more on this? Why are you spending more on that? I think you have to be a political realist about this. But, you know, the public do want more money spent on the health service. The public do want more money spent on education. And I think so I think we have to be... I think you've got to be fiscally conservative and politically realistic. And, you know, no budget or no statement is perfect. But I think in terms of the broad thrust, I think it ticks those boxes. OK, so we've got a pessimist and an optimist and Kate. I'm in between. 
I agree with Fraser that this is very far away from a growth agenda. I appreciate that if you look at where more money is going, it's say in terms of education and the commitment to keep up R&D spending, these are personal beliefs of Rishi Sunak that we can go back to his Mace lecture in February, which kind of gave us the best outline that we've had so far in terms of his economic beliefs and his big picture stuff. And I know he believes that, and I don't think he's, he's wrong about those assessments, but nothing announced in that in that autumn statement is going to get us meaningful growth anytime Mm. soon. So I agree with Fraser, and I think that's really disappointing. I continue to be an avid critic of windfall taxes. You cannot hike up windfall taxes to the extent that this government has on the energy companies and really claim that you're being pro-growth. I think that's very difficult to do. But I'm very sympathetic to James's point that they were starting from a position that no one would want to be in, where they had to prove to Marcus that they had fiscal credibility. That was the point of this statement. It was not meant to be, you know, an electoral rallying cry. It was not meant to be a growth rallying cry. It was meant to be a sober wake-up call. And in that sense, I think on those metrics, they succeeded. Of course, we can say that that's a very low bar. You know, we would hope that the UK government would not be going to a major fiscal statement with the sole goal of not spooking the markets and leading to chaos. We would just hope that, like, we don't have to, you know, (laughs) that's just like a baseline. That's not going to happen. But as we learned a few months back, you know, that can happen. So we have to look at it from that angle as well. If we go back to when Rishi Sunak was chancellor, we got a lot of hints that he understood the fundamental problem about the size of the state, that the state was getting ever bigger, it was costing ever more money. We were not getting good results for that. And when we look back to that national insurance hike, he tried to bring in that levy for health and social care. You know, he wanted to attach the idea that if you want more money for the NHS, and as James says, all the polls suggest you do, that means you pay for it, right? We can tax the rich more, and Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunter doing that, but we're talking about so much money that everyone's going to have to contribute. And I think that the autumn statement was an extension of that, not policy, that policy is gone, but extension of that attitude. We need to show people that what they want costs money. Once we do that, perhaps then we can talk about reform. Well, so, what kind of timescale are you talking well, about? Well, this okay. is. I mean, the, we have an election in 18 months, right? And what I thought was almost, I wouldn't call it fraudulent, but. It is a major, I think, misleading the way these budgets are discussed. Like, he's going to do this and that in three or four years' time. No, he's not. He's not going to be in power in three years' time, really. Isn't that just politics, Fraser? Well, well, no, but my point is, though, it is politics. You're right. But as journalists, we ought to be the ones saying, look, let's look at this budget and let's think. We can take seriously anything he does, he says, in the next year or two years. But anything he plans for post-election cannot be taken seriously because the odds on a Conservative Chancellor delivering any budgets post-election are relatively small. Now, to me, this is what I regard as a slightly fake narrative here, that what the Tories have done is they have written the next manifesto as well as the budget statement. And you could see in the silence in the House of Commons yesterday was there was the MPs found nothing to cheer, just as the post-budget newspapers were almost uniformly scathing in their approach of this budget. The Tories were working out, hang on a minute, this guy's going to send me out to the doorstep saying, please vote for me, and if you do, I'm going to tax the bejesus on you in a way that you've never seen in living memory, and I'm going to do lots of cuts, so please vote Tory. And I just don't think they regard it as a very plausible re-election manifesto, which raises the question as to whether 
the Conservative Party have already given up on the next election. It would make sense for them to do so. I, I just want to flag here that the budget was too... As James says, right, there, there isn't any much austerity this year or next year. Now, they might say quite right too because there's a recession. You wouldn't want to worsen the recession. But to pledge all of that, that tax rises, all of that misery to come as almost a punishment for a party which decides to elect them for a fourth term, to me is odd and a bit implausible and suggests a party which might just have given up the will to win. I think it is worth noting that Pat McFadden, Labour Treasury spokesman on, on Thursday, suggested that, that Labour accepted the OBR numbers about what was needed. So by Pat McFadden's logic, if Labour are going to promise more spending at the next election, they're going to have to talk about raising more taxes to pay for it. I think that we are just adjusting to a painful reality that this era where the government could just easily borrow money very, very cheaply is over. We're spending huge amounts of money on debt interest. And therefore, we've got straightened choices. You know, there is also, I think, for the public finances, there have been a series of negative shocks in recent years, from COVID crisis to the war in Ukraine, which has required all of this support on energy prices. So the choices are just unappealing right now. And I think they are unappealing right now, whichever party is in power. I think I think one of the things that we saw with Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng is they tried to break out of his straitjacket. And the market said, no, 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 you don't. And I think this is the challenge. I think if you look at what Labour are saying today, I don't think Labour are saying, well, we're going to spend huge amounts more money. Labour are, are playing their cards very close to their chest. They're talking about, you know, a tax on non-doms to fund some more doctors' training places, right? You know, classic 1997 style, accept the broad envelope, but just tweak around it at the edges. So when you talk about the next election, I don't see a situation where where Labour are saying, well, vote for us and, you know, it's, it's all easy street, because there is no easy street anymore. But James, complete the sentence. Vote Conservative at the next election because... I think they will have to prove in the next two years that their economic management has calmed the situation and has begun to turn the corner. And therefore, there is a kind of cap on the, on the debt interest costs. So you're not, you're not losing more and more money to debt interest, which, as you and Kate have both said so eloquently, you don't get anything for that money. That is just dealing with old debts, right? Then I think the next thing they will need is, you know, they will hope, have to hope that the economic situation, and I mean, there are some reasons to think it might, it actually improves a bit from where it is. You know, I think if... if, 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 if you've seen if, the living standards projections. Over the next yeah. two years, we're going to have the worst drop in living standards and living memory, and your average voter is going to be thanking the no, Tories. No, I, well. I think you are completely right that normally, when you have a financial crisis whether it's 1992 or 2008, the governing party loses the next election. It will take something exceptional for them not to lose the next election. I think the only basis on which you can be have some optimism about it is there are some beginning to be some signs, and I think this will be particularly be the case if Putin is forced to end the war in Ukraine, that inflation might come down faster than expected. I think the 7.4% that the OBR is talking about for next year might turn out to be slightly on the higher side than it is. But, but, you know, look, we can talk about this. But I also think that we are in a world where, for a country such as the UK, at the moment, the fiscal choices are not hugely appealing. And I think that you, the voters may well say time for a change, you know, but I don't think that Labour are going to be going into that election saying, vote for us and we'll spend massively more money on this or that, because... They know that the only way they could do that would be by raising taxes. And if they wanted to raise taxes still further, 
given how high the tax burden already is, as, as you so eloquently pointed out, on Friday, you know, that would be a very hard sell politically. Right, but you're a supporter of this budget, but I still don't see why you think anybody should vote Tory the next But election. Fraser, isn't the choice between Labour and Conservative or not voting or voting for one of the fringe parties? And James's point, as I understand it, is that Labour can't do really much better. Well, I can understand that. Well, well, I, I'm just genuinely struggling. because, By the way, I, I would say that right now I'm feeling so negative about this budget that I'm fully prepared to believe there's a chunk of it I don't understand yet. I can't work out how somebody <laughs> as smart as Rishi Sunak could come up with such a bleak hopeless. And when I say hopeless, I mean without any hope budget. What would you do if you were uh, in number 11? Well, I just, I find it very difficult to believe that Rishi Sunak, all best he can do is get some retreads in from the greatest hits of the last 10 years. Uh, well, well, first of all, I'm not as smart as Rishi Sunak. I, I, I would really have thought that he would have some kind of, you know what, here's the idea for getting us out of this. His, but hold he, on, Fraser, what would you do? I could do a whole, a whole bunch of things. Well, first of all, I wouldn't do a budget saying we're doomed, just accept it. Which, by the way, that's the new Tory election slogan. And I'll tell you the first thing I would do. I would have a look at the scandal of five million people on network benefits and I would take urgent steps think, to get them I back to, to work. Be, I think to be fair to them, a lot of governments... And we know this in the past because lots of governments have done this. They just choose to ignore this. They choose to talk about the unemployment figures and not talk about the number of people parked and out of work benefits. I think the fact that they are actually addressing this and admitting that there is a problem, admitting that there is a problem is the first step to dealing with that <laughs> problem. No, no, I mean... I mean James is like, right. We know, that's we know a four-year that cycle. Both, no, but just a second. We know that both the Thatcher and Blair governments were quite happy to see the number of people on out-of-work benefits, but outside of the headline unemployment figures increase, right? The Tory party needs to get back to doing what it did in 2010, which was moving people from welfare into work. I completely agree with you on that. And I think they are actually trying to do something about that. So I think on that point, there is actually action coming. Now, we can sit down and discuss in six months' time whether that action has been sufficient or not. But, you know, they have actually acknowledged that problem rather than just saying, you know, some people have just said, well, look, the economic situation is bleak, but unemployment is at 3.6%, and that's close to historic lows. So that's, that's one thing that makes this recession different from the recessions of the 80s. Well, that's, that's exactly let, let's talk. let Kate come in for a bit, because you've been very polite, Kate. <laughs> I'm listening, I'm just gleaning. Fraser, I completely agree with you that they don't have a lot of time to reform. My biggest frustration and concern about this budget is that they admitted, and you know, again, they did the wake-up call that if you want to make good on all of these promises, particularly around pensions and healthcare, taxes are going up. I think that's a very important message, a painful message, but one that had to be delivered, especially after COVID, especially now that they can't just borrow this money in order to fund day-to-day public spending because investors aren't going to allow it. And yet in the same budget, they stuck to the triple lock on state pensions and they increased money for the NHS by $7 billion. I mean, Jeremy Hunt literally was talking about how the NHS does not have good enough results, how he wants a combination of Scandinavia and Singapore for the NHS, and then his answer was to give it more money. So, I mean, and James, I'm sure will say, quite rightly, you have to operate in political parameters here. And in the cover piece this week, you know, I, I spoke to a government insider who basically says, you, you can't do all of this at once, Kate. And I appreciate those political barriers, but it is frustrating that people's taxes are going up. And also the reason that they're going up is only being perpetuated. It is very much a, a vicious circle in this budget. But Fraser, I think you'll know better than most, and, and this is where my sympathies come in, and, and maybe we're just looking at it from slightly different angles. I think there are lots of things outside of tax policy that the government could be doing, and for political reasons it isn't, like building lots more homes, building more energy infrastructure. There are serious ways to get growth up in this country that don't require us paying all that much money to do so. But Fraser, like, I'm not sure outside of that, and that's a really big caveat, what 
more Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt would have done yesterday. We always knew that two years of lockdowns, turning the global economy off and on again, was going to have substantial repercussions. And this is where I'm, again, quite sympathetic to the prime minister now, that is chancellor. He was basically the only one saying this behind the scenes. You know, guys, we must stop spending all of this money. We must be more efficient and accountable. And everyone, including Prime Minister Johnson, was saying, don't be ridiculous. You know, this is the new way. Liz Truss, who spent a decade talking about fiscal responsibility, was saying, Rishi, you're being silly. This is the new way. And, you know, he always knew that this was going to have a price. He was right about that. I don't see how Hunt, Truss, Johnson, Kiyostama, I don't see how Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Re- like, I, <laughs> I don't see how you come out of COVID doing what we've done, and that's already set, that's done, and not have a serious recession, not have sky-high inflation, not see the need to make taxes go up in the short term in order to get the books back in order. I... I so hear your frustrations, and I'm frustrated too, but I genuinely, given what we've already done, don't know how the situation could look much better. We were always guaranteed to have a really tough few years after COVID. I do think the Tories are in part of a mess because they are looking at a bunch of false options. I mean, you say, that is there any way we would have avoided recession? Well, pretty much every country in Europe is going to grow its economy next year, apart from but us. But they didn't have a lockdown as long as ours. Oh, no, sure, but they all had lockdowns to varying degrees. Spain, for example, had a lockdown pretty much as long as ours. Now, I completely accept that because we locked down longest and hardest, we were always going to have the biggest bill to pay. But I don't think it is either all or nothing. I think Wolfgang Munchauer wrote a piece for the Spectator website yesterday saying that the change between Quartang and Hunt was way bigger than the change between the Tories and Labour would have been. It's such an about turn. I mean, you know, down around the corner from our office here is a two-chairman pub, a magnificent place. And after budget night, I was walking past, and you see the Treasury absolutely mobbing the place, as they always do after budgets. And I was walking past it thinking, isn't it funny, just eight weeks ago, these exact same people were off celebrating the complete opposite of the economic agenda that they're now celebrating now. Of course, that's the role of our civil service. But I just had cause to reflect on it. But also just thinking how how odd it must be to be them, right? To be taking one bunch of marching orders one week and then two months later toasting the success of of both times. But I do think there is a medium ground to go in between these two. I think there is there is more room for manoeuvre. And I think the problem with Tories have got... that you lost some of that room for manoeuvre because of the reaction. I think, but they didn't have much more room for manoeuvre than they did. I actually think that this fiscal rule that they've got is pretty loose, right? And I think we would have all thought this if we were back... You know, let, let's go back 20 years to when we were university students. And someone had told us about a fiscal rule that just required debt to be falling as a percentage of GDP at the end of a rolling five-year forecast period. And we'd been asked to place that on a scale, right, from tight to loose. We all would have thought that was pretty loose, right? And I think there is a real danger that the UK is not fully out of the spotlight. I think if they had gone any looser than that, right, and there's not a huge amount of headroom there, so they've not got a huge amount of margin for error here. I think they've gone any looser than that. You could have had another market reaction, another example of the market saying, hang on a second, we don't buy this. By the way, but that's one area where we disagree, James. No, but, but we... One we, area. <laughs> no, but like... We, look, yeah, but it's always useful. James and I agree on most things, right? But, but, we, but, but here, we, we do disagree. Well, no, I just went to discover this podcast. There's but, been more than one. But we, we are discussing a hypothetical, right? So we, we can't know which of us is right, and it is a judgment call. All I would say is that I would rather, in this debate, err on the side of caution. Because I think that, you know, market confidence is one of those things that you either have or you don't have it. And when you lose it... It's very, very hard to get it back. 
as you saw on Thursday, how far they had to go to assure people that the UK was credible on this. As you said, James, there's a massive unknown. They're guessing. And now we're, we're getting down to... It's a judgment of... call. But it is also clearly a judgment call that the previous administration got wrong. Yeah, that's right. And the other one jumped. I would say they overcorrected. And we're getting this Osbornian language. We've got to do X, Y, and Z because the markets tell us to. And if we don't do it, the market's going to punish us. Ultimately, we're spending too much money. And this is the problem that... Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have come the closest to acknowledging in many, many years, but they still can't fully acknowledge because that is the, like, Thursday was tough, difficult choices, and Jeremy Hunt's gone on the media round yesterday, you know, reiterating these are tough, difficult choices. The really tough, really hard choice is to say, what do we want the state to do, and what's it going to do less? Unless we're very happy with having these higher tax rates and, frankly, taxes going up and up even further to keep up with our current commitments. I think it was Ryan Bourne from the Cato Institute who I saw tweeted out that in 2019, government spending was just under 40% of GDP. And by 2028, it's going to be over 43% of GDP. Like, even with this austerity 2.0, the state is getting ever bigger. And unless we're happy with that, with the tax burden being at a post-war high, going up even further in order to fund this, if we don't think there's anything to cut, nothing to change, if we don't think the state should remotely change its ways, you know, and we're happy with the trajectory, fine. But I suspect a lot of listeners to this podcast don't agree with it. I suspect a lot of voters across political parties don't agree with that. And that's what we have to tackle and address. And, you know, we can debate the political realities, as James has pointed out. We can debate the way that this might actually make recession worse, as Fraser has pointed out. But until we talk about spending, I don't see loads of room for maneuver. Kate, I think you've absolutely cut to the heart of it. And there is something which is about spending. How big is the state? And basically, how practical is it to reduce it? Now, I detected some of James's earlier comments that he thinks it's politically. Whatever the merits of shrinking the state might be, you need to operate within political parameters. And those parameters simply do not allow themselves to cutting it very much. I would also think there's a degree of Tory fatalism here. I think I would regard this as the core malady here, that a resignation to the idea that for reasons of demographics, for globalisation, that we are basically confined to resign to having a government pretty much as big as it is. I mean, we're not significantly smaller. And we can't do that because we have an ageing society, etc., and all these guys and benefits and that not much can be done about. I would reject that idea as fatalistic and the nub of all the tax problems. But, James, you wrote this very good cover piece um, last year about the Leviathan, the, the big state, because you were more persuaded throwback. that demographic forces did lead to piece. bigger pace. But, but I think the thing is, what, what James's thesis, I think, yeah. is that the intellectual basis of this budget, saying that, yes, I think that Rishi agrees with James, that the government, for various reasons, mainly demographic, has got to be this big, and therefore we're going to have to raise taxes to adjust to it. So the argument I would make is that you need to reform services before you can reduce spending. I thought there was a very, very important moment this week when the IFS came out and said, look, hang on a second, something weird is going on here. The NHS has more staff and more money in real terms than it had in 2019, and yet it's treating fewer people. Now, that is an inversion of the old Tory argument that if you voted for them, you got more for less, right? This is less for more. And I think... I think you can't reduce the amount of healthcare that you are offering the population, but you have to get better value out of the system, right? And that means reform. And I don't think you can do reform in like one year. But I think what, what has happened in British politics is that since the 
And this is not because of Brexit. This is because of attention deficit. Politicians can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Since 2016, public service reform has been hugely neglected in British politics. And I think what you need to do is to get back to public service reform, get back to thinking about how you get more out of the system for the amount of money you're putting in. And the amount of money that we are putting into the NHS, we should be getting massively better results than we are. And then I think we also need to think about things like preventative healthcare, how we ensure that there is fewer demands on the NHS. Now, that's a whole other separate podcast where we, we will all disagree. But, you know, and then on education, you know, again, we need to be thinking about how we make that the most productive spending we can so that you boost the growth rate. Because these are the two things that you have to do to make the choices less unappealing. You have to get more out of public services, the amount of money that you're putting in, so that you can hold down the amount of spending you are getting because people are still seeing on the front line the same delivery of services that they were before, even though the growth of spending has slowed. And then the second thing you need to do is boost the growth rate of the economy and crucially in a sustainable way, not a kind of sugar rush moment of, oh, we grow very quickly and then it comes right back down again, but find ways to boost the sustainable growth rate of the economy. And I think in the UK, one of the absolute keys to that is, is education and skills. You know, we spend a lot on lots of things, but in OECD terms, we spend relatively little on skills. And I think we also think about this we think about education the wrong way in this country. We think about it as something that stops at 18 or 21, when actually it can't do that. It needs to be a much more through-life process because of the changing demands on the workforce. So I think that you know, it's public service reform and growth that are ultimately going to mean that we can control the size of a state and that we don't come back and sit here in 20 years' time with the state being 50% of GDP and the tax burden being even higher than it is now. So I think those are the two things that you need to do. But, but, I, but they're absent right now, aren't they, James? I mean, no. but, but my point is, in my opinion, reform takes about a year to think through. Like, say you were going to come up with the solution to the NHS. I don't know what it is. In my opinion, it would take about a year to think through. I don't know how much longer to implement and the Conservatives, it seems, simply are out of time. And the other thing is, James, I don't know if you, just, you agree with this, but the reform is often very politically difficult. Mm. You look, look at the bullets and the brickbats Michael Gove took for school. So you, it's difficult to put in your manifesto, we're going to reform the NHS. I'm trying to work out if you're talking about something you would like to happen, but politically you think it just can't. No, I, th I think NHS reform, as long as you do not touch the whole idea that this is free at the point of view, and funded out of general taxation, right? I think that is possible. And I think it is also quite clear that the variety of performance between different NHS trusts suggests that there are ways that you can get better value for money out of the NHS, right? And also, I think there is also on, on the healthcare front, something has clearly gone wrong with general practice, right? Which is, you know, COVID is, is not the thing that it once was, yet the people's ability to access GP services is clearly not where it was in 2019 before COVID struck. So what is... Which, by the way, wasn't great back then either. No, 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 I'm not, I'm international not. standards was still quite awful, no, no. but yes. There's a very good piece coming up in the next issue of The Spectator about what the role that pharmacies can play. There are ways that we can reform our healthcare system, which I think aren't politically controversial because I think most people would see them as common sense. Most people would think that if you go to a pharmacy and you've got a prescription for a medicine that is out of stock because of global supply chain issues and the pharmacist can just be able to just prescribe you a different medicine, there are things that we can do that would make things more efficient that are not hugely politically 
controversial. I think there are things that we can do in terms of trying to improve people's health to lower the demands on the health service. Again, I think our... our if you say sugar dual, tax, we're going to have to do another 30 minutes. No. But I also think that in terms... You, you back a sugar tax, don't you? Let's not divert this podcast ever further into areas of, of disagreement. I also don't want to lose a swing voter in Kate Andrews, right? Um, <laughs> yes, this is exactly how you lose me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think also on skills, I think, you know, historically, our firms spend considerably less than European average on training their staff. So I think we need to, to have reform Immigration's too high. To the tax system. Well, here's where you lose the swing voter, Fraser. Uh, but no. you need to have reforms to the tax system that incentivise businesses to spend more on training. I think one thing that I would think that is crucial when the budget comes is this, is... The bargain that Rishi Sunak wanted to do on corporation tax, you know, you have to keep that, right? Which is, yes, you're going to have a higher rate, but you will have allowances within the system to try and spur more productive investment. I mean, that still has to happen. And one of the most, one of the key things is, I think, getting companies to invest more in their workforce to, A, address some of the skills shortages and also make firms more productive. And, you know, ultimately, the productivity puzzle in the UK is why we are having such a difficult and depressing podcast. If we could boost productivity, we would be having a much more cheerful conversation right now. Well, James, if we had you in the government actually making this idea, it would also <laughs> cheer things up. But, but Cindy, you could go back to how he's feeling about the budget. And but not, I don't think Thursday was the moment to stand up and say all this It's not stuff. just that. I see absolutely no one on the horizon about to come up with any... Now, by the way... Going back to what I was saying earlier about how perhaps as part of us I don't see or understand, right? But perhaps Rishi Sunak is planning a bad cop, good cop, right? This is the psychological blue, all the misery, etc. And but he's going to, in two months' time, come up with a hey guys, I've told you the problem. Now now I'm going to tell you the solution. I really want to think he is going to come up with something like that and reveal some reform agenda. Although I do think I it's think depressing all... that we have to go back to square one, given that the Tories were doing this like three years ago. I think it all... shouldn't require that much thinking. I think after all the drama of the last few months. The Tory party has to go for a period of under-promising and over-delivering. I think that if Jeremy Hunt has stood up and said, here's the bad news, but don't worry, here's the growth plan, and we're going to get growth to 3% a year, I think that the public would just have said, nah, you know, this is... We, 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 we've we, heard it before. We've heard it before. Quite recently. I think you've got to actually do... And I think one of the other lessons of the trust quoting era is you've got to do the preparatory work before you launch reforms. You've got to know. I think one of the problems that they had was they talked about supply-side reforms, but without having put flesh on the bone. But they talked about them in the the vague abstract, and then immediately people rushed out and said, well, we won't accept this, we won't accept that, until you were so politically hemmed in. I mean, you need to know what you want to do. But I I think these are the two most important things are to work out, you know, given the amount of money that is going into the state, but you've got to find ways to reform the state so you get more out of that money. And I think you're right that, like, this is about going back to the old disciplines that, you know, British politics had. You know, I think we had a 30-year period or more where public service reform was one of the big arguments of politics. It just has been neglected, and you've got to get back to that. So there is a great escape then, James? I think there are ways that you can do this, that will begin to show some tangible results. Kate, are you optimistic for a great, great escape? I have another question. Is 44 days an era? Um, I think, I think <laughs> in terms of the amount of things that happened in mm. it, is that, it is yeah. an era. No, I think and I think this is, you know, I think there is a I think it's of... an interesting definition. Is 44 days an era? I'm not sure. Well, this is, a, this is the problem, because so much Sinek's doing now is defining himself against this non-existent era. But hold on, wait, wait, just to actually answer your question, Fraser, on, on the great escape. 
I think a cynic might suggest that in terms of the brutal politics of it, you put all the really bad news and really bad policy on the table now. And to your point, Fraser, you know, half of that bad news, tax hikes will come in, the spending cuts are not for another few years. You know, it is very difficult to imagine the Tories going into another election with that manifesto written as this autumn statement would have laid it out. And a cynic might say that a lot of those spending cuts will disappear in the next year or two when we get new growth figures, more OBR updates, and, and they say, oh, look, we fixed it, you know, or mm. we started to fix it and we don't have to do all these things. And here's your tax cut now. And here are the spending increases now and all this good stuff. I was about to say good stuff. And then I checked myself because as I've already pointed out, the state's really big. But, you know, we do need tax cuts. Not obviously in the Liz Trust way of this is the only way we're going to get growth. Tax cuts should be the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the benefit for putting in place sound public policy, good finances, and a real supply side reform growth agenda. I think I agree with you, Fraser, so much is still missing. But Rishi Sunak, to be fair, did just get into number 10. And he had to immediately address market concern. I would genuinely be shocked if in a year's time, the Tories were sticking to everything that was laid out in this autumn statement. I think they will be planning to pivot to something more optimistic. Let's hope so. Do you feel better, Fraser, at the end of this discussion? He does not look like he feels better. No, you really do. I do actually feel better because James is a very well-informed guy and he's effervescent here with plans of public sector reform. So I, I like to think that they might be bubbling through to the Conservative front benches. That's all I'm looking for right now. I mean, I'm not in any doubt as to how bad this budget had to be because we are so exposed to inflation for reasons that Kate pointed out in her seminal cover piece early last year. We're paying £120 billion in debt interest this year, twice as much as we thought we'd have to do last year. And according to the IFS, we're spending more to service the debt than we are on any other public service bar the NHS. Yeah, you bet. And the extra that is just, six, that's remarkable. And the extra six million had to come from somewhere. And I'm not naive in, in, in accepting that. If I was Rishi Sunak, I would have combined the bleak news with some suggestion that I am in possession of a clue as to how to get out of here. Because a lot of voters are going to be looking at this and they will be making up their minds. They will associate the Conservatives as the party of chaos, the party of high taxes, and a council of despair. The risk for Rishi Sunak is by the time he comes to give us his good news, people might have tuned out and we're not listening to the Conservatives anymore. And if that does happen to be the case, I do think that this week's autumn statement will have been a turning point in that process. James, Fraser and Kate, I'm going to have to wrap up there. And thank you to the listener at home for not tuning out. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>